we have a great title for today's episode, Weathering Risk, the Climatology of Energy Markets. It's an interview with Aaron Perry, and this is episode 46. First, I want to welcome you to the My Energy 2050 podcast. We speak to people building a clean energy system even before 2050. And I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. This week, we speak with Aaron Perry. He's a senior associate in valuation and risk analytics at Resurity. He's also a former student of mine, but as you'll see, he's brilliant. With him, we discuss the role that long-term and short-term weather forecasting plays in reducing financial risks. Aaron is a climatologist, and he takes a long-term view on the impact weather has on renewable energy and we talk a lot about wind and solar, since these are some of the most weather-dependent renewable forms of, of energy that are really broadly deployed around the world. As Aaron explains in today's episode, the market impact of weather in an age of these weather-dependent technologies does play a role and impact the price on the power markets. We talk a lot today about power markets and the role that renewables play in them, and both the profits and the losses that happen in these power markets when things are not aligning. And this is why weather is so important and the ability to predict the output of renewable facilities like wind and solar, because this really means that the owners can ride these different peaks and troughs of prices in the power markets. And even of course, in the weather conditions are always shifting. So if there's a greater ability to manage, we'll say a portfolio of renewable energy assets, then those companies, those firms that own these renewable energy projects, and they are able to do the different portfolio management of assets to ensure these are profitable. And to be honest, it's a bit hard for me to summarize our discussion in some very clear points today, because as you'll hear as, a, as the episode progresses, our discussion becomes much more complex and even more carefully worded in how Aaron begins to describe both how weather prediction is done and how power markets operate. I, th I think we really get, of all the episodes I've, I've had with different people, we really get into the complexities of power markets and weather. And because of this, uh, we pick and choose our words and our discussion points very carefully. But I want you to pay attention to the complexities around this financing of renewable energy projects, how owners are really careful and need to understand the power markets themselves, because this complexity really determines whether they make money over the long term or they, they, they lose it. And Aaron, as I mentioned, he's a climatologist. And so he's really looking for longer term trends in weather, like three to five years and even a bit beyond then, by looking at these bigger, this bigger energy picture over the longer term, the facilities themselves can begin to hedge, and we get into it towards the latter part of the episode, those facilities and the owners can begin to hedge their power outputs. Hedging, and I really like our discussion on hedging, it really means about shifting the risks of a project or the markets from one from one owner, we could say, of certain risks to another one. So another uh, group of companies or a firm, a firm can take over the risks uh, in exchange for reducing the risks for others. And of course, there's money exchange and profits and losses made through these hedging facilities, we'll call them. This is important to understand is, is what are the risks in the renewable energy market and which actors are willing to take on that risk and which actors don't want to take on that risk. And I think by understanding how the power market works, and as Aaron points out, and which his expertise is, is weather prediction. By combining these things, we can begin to understand how renewable energy can be even more broadly deployed around the world. So the intent of today's My Energy 2050 podcast is to spread the knowledge, I would say, about weather and risk management and how this can benefit the energy system over the long term to facilitate our energy transition. And now for this week's episode. I'm here today with Aaron Perry, a senior associate on the analytics team at Resurity, a company focused on analytics and clean energy. And I will let Aaron explain the rest. Aaron, welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast. 
Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. So, and I should say that uh, you're a former student who has turned mm -hmm. out to be super successful in life because you have <laughs> a job you. and this is really <laughs> <Yes>. special. <laughs> So, Aaron, um, maybe maybe you can give us a bit of background. Um, actually, first about yourself, because yeah. uh, when when you came to Central European University, mm -hmm. you you had already uh, established this this background in weather, and I'll keep it at that. Mm -hmm. And then maybe you could just talk about how you ended up in the job you have now. Yeah, so um, I did my bachelor's degree at Cornell in atmospheric science, um, and I got. I, I've always been really interested in, in meteorology and the weather, and I I wanted to take that and do something else with it. I just wasn't sure what at the time, um, and and that's why after uh, my meteorology program, I looked at the MESPOM program, Masters in Environmental Science Policy and Management um, at CEU, and that gave me sort of a great overview of the environmental field and, and sort of all of the different aspects of it. And so for my thesis, I wanted to try to bring those two together and find a way where I can apply meteorological or climatology skills uh, to help solve environmental problems. And, and one of the ways that I, I saw as a potential intersection there is meteorology and climatology in the context of renewable energy. And I thought that it was really interesting to, to look at uh, meteorology in the energy industry, because it is something that's, um, even before renewables, a very important aspect, um, like weather and climate drive electricity demand, drive heating demand, and forecasting and risk management tools for the energy industry have long been established. And I, I thought it was interesting to look into sort of that same area, but for renewables. Um, you, wanted I, to, you wanted to contribute yeah. to the clean energy transition. Yes, exactly. Um, I, I wanted to, to make a difference there. Um, after, after graduation, I uh, found a job at uh, a company called Vaisla doing wind and solar resource assessments so that I was able to use my meteorology skills to try and help evaluate wind and solar farms, not just in the U.S., but around the world, which was uh, a really fun job. Um, and, and then I came across Resurity, which was looking at um, how to take weather and climate knowledge, power markets, financial modeling, and help uh, come up with ways of, of helping renewable uh, developers and buyers um, better manage the weather-related risk to renewable energy. And that, that was sort of what I was looking at in my thesis. It's, it's what I've been interested in for a while. And uh, I mean, the company was, I think, just two people when I had first graduated from CEU and so did not quite find them yet. Um, but after some time at Vaisla, yeah, I, I came across them and, and uh, yeah, I thought it was a really good fit. And I, I really, I really like what we do here. Uh-huh. Excellent. So you've been building this knowledge more and more. And how do you see, maybe we'll dive into some re reflection from, from you, but how, so you've actually been in this space for quite some time then. and. How do you see even just how weather is understood and used in, maybe we can just talk about solar and wind, I guess, in, in this context. Mm -hmm. How has that changed in just the past few years that you've been involved? I think there is a sort of growing understanding that um, like the details matter even, even in the long term. So um, like there's... I think historically been a lot of focus on on what is the P50, what is the the expected generation um, long term, and then what are sort of the tails, the downside um, risk in terms of the distribution of outcomes for for generation. Um, and I think there is a realization that like what happens on the hourly level is is also incredibly important, and so there has been 
both on the resource assessment level and I think the finance level, um, a bigger and bigger push to sort of improve that hourly modeling and improve um, sort of how we combine our view of the weather and climate and our view of, of power markets on that time scale and, and sort of project that out long term. Mm -hmm. Maybe let, let's, because you brought in power markets rather than just the weather, mm -hmm. which since you bring, bring in power markets, it's really complex. So maybe we can break this down a bit. So, oh, yeah. and, and so, so we have the weather, which I guess is, I'll just say, let's set a, that aside for the minute. We, we know mm -hmm. about the weather. We always talk about it every day. Right. But, mm -hmm. but power markets, let's talk about power markets and then go back to weather. And yeah. what is, why, why would a, um, like a company that owns a solar farm or wind farm, um, why would they be interested in the weather and connection to the power markets? Well, uh, power, the price of power changes, um, hour to hour, in some cases, minute to minute. Um, it is, it is very variable and responsive to, um, demand and generation changes. Um, the grid always has to be kept in balance between supply and demand. And like those imbalances are, are fixed by changes in price as the price is the signal that something needs, needs to change. Um, and that variability combined with some of the variability in generation can mean that even though on average your generation is high and on average prices are high, you may not actually realize uh, the revenue from those high prices and your high generation. Because if all of those high prices are happening during times when you're not generating, you don't get to realize that revenue. Mm. So can I stop, stop you there? So we actually, it's crazy. <laughs> like, so you have the power market, which is trading and there's, there's players on that side, the traders, the energy traders themselves, and it's up and down. It's somewhat what consistent in an average kind of year maybe, but it also has its up and down hourly things like this that change, right? Especially yeah. in, I don't know. I don't want to say just not just an emergency, but if a coal-fired power plant goes offline accidentally mm -hmm. or, or quickly, then you know, then there's a lot of changes there. So you have that side, and then you have the the variability in the weather that causes a lot of change. So it sounds like a very I don't want to say volatile, but but it's a it's a fast moving or it's a very complex interaction between the weather and output weather and output of these farms. And then the power market itself then, is that? Yeah, and, and the weather impacts both sides. So if it's a, if it's a particularly cold day, uh, people are gonna be turning on their heat more, they'll be spending more time inside and that will, that will raise demand as well. Mm -hmm. So you're actually right at the center of the energy system yourself. <laughs> you, you, <laughs> you're, I mean, but okay, we'll be careful about this, but predicting the weather and understanding the weather events uh, in specific areas, both benefits understanding how the market works and also the technical side about the production side of it. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I, and I think that's, that's the part that's more unique to renewable energy compared to, um, like fossil fuel producers where, uh, fossil fuel producers also care a lot about the weather. Um, but they care more about the weather on, on the demand side. Uh, renewable energy cares about both demand and supply side uh, weather risk. Okay, okay. So because if you're a coal-fired power plant or gas-fired power plant, mm -hmm. you, you just operate regardless of the weather, but you just have to take the demand side into account. Yeah. Uh, and then what are the challenges... Uh, that you see on the renewable side. So I would just say, obviously, there's sun, there's clouds. Uh, as as forecasting the weather changes, both. Uh, I'm really interested in your long term projections or how you mm -hmm. how you formulate those compared to your more, as you just mentioned, kind of short term projections. So what what are the things you have to look at? Um. Well, 
I don't actually do any of the short-term uh, projections myself. Like that is definitely a really interesting field uh, of meteorology in terms of trying to predict how much power do we think this uh, wind farm or this solar farm will produce tomorrow or uh, this afternoon even um, and, and planning for that. What I do, I would say, is actually more climatology, so more more long-term trends. We we come up with a distribution of possible outcomes for the future, um, and from that we do our analysis. And so, um, we we will give, uh, or we can come up with what our view on the expected generation will be in the long term or the expected value of power for a particular year. Um, but what goes into that expected value is actually a, a very wide array of possible outcomes, both in terms of weather scenarios and uh, power market scenarios. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, so you have these, long-term projections and different scenarios that, that come out from it. Mm-hmm. And what, what happens when you, after you develop those scenarios? Does uh, a client choose those scenarios or, or who, who, who takes over the scenarios and what happens then? Yeah, so, so what we do now is, is we sort of do all that analysis in-house and, and we will recommend um, a, I, I guess at the heart of what we do is we, we try to estimate what we think the value for a particular wind or solar farm is worth in a particular period. Um, and we will give that number and that analysis to our risk capacity providers um, who will then provide us with sort of their view on like, what risks they're willing to accept, how much they would charge to take on some of the risks that maybe the wind farm or solar farm does not want to take. Um, and then we'll go back to uh, our clients with that and say, sort of, here is uh, what we can provide you uh, in terms of a quote for a particular hedge contract. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Okay, we're getting ahead. So, yeah, no, so no. because I'm, 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 I'm trying to understand everything. So, mm-hmm. um, you, you, um, maybe, maybe we go, um, clean energy sellers and clean energy buyers. This is some yeah. of the terminology that's used. So, so maybe before we get up to hedging, yep. which is really <laughs> a, a, you know, advanced financial product for me, uh, we can start off with clean energy, who are clean energy sellers and who are clean energy buyers? Yeah. Um, clean energy sellers are the wind and solar farms that are uh, producing the power. And in terms of the work that we do, they're typically represented by the developers of those projects or the investors in the project. Okay. Um, clean energy buyers are usually large corporations or utilities or financial institutions that want to purchase power from uh, renewable sources. Okay. Okay. And so, so what you're talking about is not necessarily people that are just operating on the day-to-day uh, market, but also longer term. In, in some relationships there, contractual yeah. relationships. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. and, and so um, for actually not even for the most part, entirely, these are um, large, large organizations, utility scale projects, um, the type of work and analysis that, that we do are, don't involve um, sort of the, the typical uh, individual consumers of power. Okay. Okay. Like households, you mean? Exactly. Okay. Okay. So these are large corporations generally, Mm -hmm. uh, that, that own, and then the buy the, the, the energy that that's produced. Okay. And then, um, and then your involvement or the, um, the resurety's involvement is about risk management. Um, and maybe, because there's lots of different types of risks, of course, in the energy sector. There's political mm-hmm. risk. 
uh, where there's like just investment risk. Is someone going to pay it back? But mm-hmm. there, we could also just say there's even weather-related risks. Maybe you could define a bit better the weather-related risk. Yeah, definitely. Um, so in in our our field, the weather-related risk that we typically think of is is the the risk that the the resource isn't going to show up when you expect it to. Um, and so long-term on average, uh, the wind resource will be there, but maybe not exactly when, when you hope it will be on like this day, like 10 years in the future. Um, and so that, that is a, a risk in renewable energy that other sources don't necessarily have, um, and that's one of the things that um, these hedging contracts can help mitigate. Um, other risks that renewable energies face sort of go beyond the weather a bit. So there's obviously price risk. Like if you build a renewable energy plant and you expect the value of power to be, say, $20 per megawatt hour for the next 10 years and it's only $15, um, that, that's a risk. That is a financial risk to you. Um, and then I would and, say, sorry, sorry, I got excited there because I understood. So, <laughs> so basically, because some of these contracts that are put in place, the the utilities agree, or the owners of these power projects agree that they will deliver at this price point and this much electricity. And you're saying that, well, actually, because of the weather, the weather is really important to understand. Uh, in offering this price and whether it can be met. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. And, but in this case, I would say um, the price risk that I mean here is just the wholesale price of electricity. So um, there are there are PPAs that um, generators can sign that will uh, sort of lock in a price for them. Um and that's something that can be considered a hedge and something that I'm sure we'll, we'll get into. Um, but I'm also uh, talking here about just the idea that the price of power market-wide is not as high as it was expected to be. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. But the, the next uh, sort of risk that I kind of separate out a little bit is, is what we call shape risk. And that is going back to what I talked about before, where you potentially have high prices on average um, and you have high generation on average, but the two don't necessarily coincide. When prices are highest, generation isn't also high. Um, and mm-hmm. that, that is sort of a combination of weather risk and price risk. Okay, okay. So you have to kind of predict, if I can say that, the, what the weather is going to be like over the longer term. Mm-hmm. And you also have to predict maybe what the price will be as well on the market. Is that right? Yep. yep. Uh-huh. Both at the same time. Yep. Jeez. Um, funny. And how do you, actually how do you do that? So so let's just get back to like basic climatology. Yeah. Uh, give me give me a lesson in climatology one hundred and one. How do you actually predict what the weather will be like in three to five years or whatever? What's the, what's the timeline that you work along? Um, yeah, like three to five years is, is a fairly accurate timeline for, for the analysis that we do. I would say we would also go out in our analysis, like 10 to 12 years. Um, and what we do is we look at, at the past. So we, there are, um, various, what we call reanalysis data sets. Um, and these data sets are produced by. Um, say NASA, they collect all of the weather data uh, that has been collected all over the world for the past 40 or 50 years, and they put it into this uh, weather model. And using all of this data, they try to predict what the weather was at every other location on Earth from all of these observations. And so there's this uh, sort of contained data set that is representative of the last 40 years of weather. Any, any day, any location on Earth, you can look up in this data set and it will tell you what it thinks the weather was. Um, 
And so we use that long-term reference data set along with um, on-site meteorological data provided to us by the developers of these projects to come up with um, what we think the long-term climatological average is um, and the distribution around that. And so from the 40 years, from the last 40 to 50 years, we are saying that, okay, next year is going to be something like one of those past years. Uh -huh. uh, we don't necessarily know, know what, but um, we are assuming that the next three to five years will be uh, in the distribution of the last 40 years. Okay. And, but, okay, I have, first I have a question about climate change, but yeah. <laughs> let, 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 me, let me go back to the, like the historical analysis. Are you looking like for patterns? So, so how, do you, how do you like choose which kind of year or which kind of months are going to look like historical months or periods? Uh, we don't. We use all of them. And so, oh, okay. so for, for every, for every four, so say we want to predict uh, sort of what, what the revenue or, or how a wind or solar farm will perform in say 2023, we would take our forward projection of, of prices for, for 2023, and we would cross it with every year that we have. Um, and we build up this distribution from the historical record. And so we don't pick which year, we just say, we think that the future is going to have this distribution of outcomes um, for the next few years. Uh-huh. Wait. But okay, but what what variables do you have to put into that? Because uh how how do you, how does it become different over time in the future? Or am I just I, not interested? Um in in our sort of near-term models it, it doesn't really. So we're saying that um each year uh has the same potential distribution of outcomes from a weather perspective. Mm -hmm. From a power, power market perspective, that's that changes. Um, there are differences in terms of what um, what wind farms are going to be built, or, or even like what what power generators are going to be retired or added, or, or things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and so the the power market is sort of harder to model, uh, in my opinion, than the weather because that is changing. Whereas, um, for the most part, um, like the weather is mean reverting on a long, what, long what does that mean? Uh, as in like, uh, you'll have a few low years, a few high years, but like it, there is a long-term mean and years will bounce sort of around that mean, but it will generally, uh, average out to the mean. Uh, power markets don't necessarily have to do that. Like they can go up, go down. Uh, they there is no sort of long term mean that they necessarily revert to. And of course, you mentioned climate change, and that that sort of uh, throws a wrench in that a bit because there is no sort of set mean. There's a trend in there um, that that needs to be taken into account. And how how do you take that into account? Um, we look at near-term years uh, more than, say, 19, the 1980s or, or something like that. We focus more on those years. Okay. So so like the last 10 years or so, I forget what it is, right, have been really hot, at least in mm -hmm. the summertime. So you would look at the past 10 years and say, oh, that's been really hot. So maybe we need to adjust the model, the historical data from 40 or 50 years and account for more or give more weight to the past 10 years in summer yeah. temperatures or something. Yeah. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, and, and for what it's worth for like the, a lot of the climate projections that we have, um, they're, they're going out to 2050, 2100, like what is the weather going to be like, or what is the climate going to be like at the end of the century? Um, our contracts don't go out that far. Um, <laughs> it is a, I would say it is a sort of safer assumption that the next 
five years are going to be like the last 10 or 20 years um, than, than anything else. I, I don't think that there is, that we need to be as concerned about shorter term uh, analysis like that. If we were doing something out to 2050, um, that uh-huh. would. So, that so would, in, what, what does the weather look like in 2100? Like we're all dead <laughs> or what, what does it look like? Uh, I, I, I can't say, I, <laughs> can't say. I don't know. Oh, okay. 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 That's fine. All right. Maybe I'll pay you to do an analysis <laughs> of what weather are we looking at in 21? It's only like 79 years from now. Right. So it, uh, that's not so bad. I mean, not so long far away, but no, I understand. But so, and this climate, um, okay. I, maybe I know the answer, which is probably no. But when when something like COP26 comes up or these big negotiations and even pledges to phase out coal in certain countries, these types of things, are they taken, do you consider these in the models at all or it's it's pretty irrelevant? Um, not really. I think I think a lot of what we do um, focuses on sort of smaller scale, like what is happening in a particular uh, ISO, so independent system operator, a, a, a grid or a section of the grid in the US. Um, in a way we, we do, but not directly. And, and what I mean by that is there are uh, forward curves uh, of power price. So it is a, a representation of where people or how people are trading power in the future. Um, and so people will sign futures contracts and there are companies that develop models that take all of those transactions and, and project out a, a future price. Mm-hmm. Just like and in the, the, sorry, just like in the oil markets, right? So the futures yeah. in the oil markets, things like this. So the same can be kind of done in renewable energy or even on the weather. Would that be right? Um, in this case, this isn't specific to renewable energy or the weather. The, uh-huh. There are forward curves that exist for um, power markets as a whole. Um, and to the extent that some of the decisions and, and policies that come out of COP26 and, and other climate initiatives are are priced into some of those forward trades, we, we take them into account, but not, not directly. Okay, okay. At least not yet. No, no, no. It's, it's, yeah, I, I totally understand. I'm, I mean, so it actually, it's kind of nice, right? You just have to deal with the weather and, and these kind of long-term trends and it's not this day-to-day politics and, and shifts that, that you're, you're looking at, but what, what are the, yeah, what are the trends and what are the patterns over, over the long-term? And, yeah. and there, there are definitely some, some policy aspects that come into it in terms of like how projects get financed and, and what are what options are available to them? I think in in uh, in the reconciliation bill in the U.S., there there's talk about potentially switching the production production tax credit from a tax credit to to a direct pay uh, subsidy, which I think would have a, a big impact on on how renewable projects get get financed or or consider their financing. But yeah, in terms of like the the analysis we do on on long term weather trends, um, don't necessarily take that into account. Uh huh. Actually, yeah, that was my next question about financing. So, can can giving these projections about weather uh, into the future help lower the cost for financing for projects, or or it affects the maybe I, I won't say lower, but just it affect it could affect how a project could be financed. Yeah. Um, these are sort of large utility scale projects and uh, when a project is looking for investors or, or financing, one of the things that is frequently required or expected of them is that they have some sort of offtake agreement. And so they are rather than sell their power into the wholesale market, and be sort of at risk for fluctuations in that market, that price risk that I was talking about earlier, um, they're expected to have some sort of agreement uh, where they can sell 
a certain amount of their power at a certain price. And, and that sort of gives their investors more confidence um, that they will be able to make the returns that, that they say they will. Um, and so having, being able to mitigate that price risk uh, or that weather risk or that shape risk can sometimes lower the cost of capital when it comes to uh, financing and constructing these projects. Okay, okay. And so, uh, yeah, lowering the, the cost of, by, so <laughs> I, I want to get into, so essentially if they get a, a forecast for where this wind farm or solar farm is located, and they see there's going to be certain periods of the year, we could just take it like that, that there'll be lower production. Uh, would they maybe build that into the contract so that like basically they're going to offer less uh, electricity at these times, or they could even buy it from other sources to fulfill the contracts? Is this one way it works? In terms of a fixed volume contract where they, um, where they have... Where, where they enter into agreement to sell a certain amount of power at a certain price at a certain time, uh, yes. Uh, like they, they would be expected to generate during that time. And if they weren't generating during that time, um, they would be obligated to buy power from someone else to sell to obligate uh, the terms of that contract. Um, that isn't the only uh, method. Um, Another way could be, say, a virtual power purchase agreement um, where a industry buyer of power would enter into agreement with a wind or solar farm that basically says, for each unit of power you generate, we will pay you a fixed rate. Okay, so that's a virtual power purchase agreement. Yep. Um, and in exchange for paying that fixed rate, they will sort of get the, the merchant revenue uh, from the plant. And so there's, there's a bit of a swap going on. So um, the plant is giving up some of their more variable revenue for or their variable price revenue for a sort of fixed price per unit generated uh, contract. And that will mitigate the, the price risk. and the shape risk that a renewable plant has, but it won't, um, in that case, remove, say, the weather-related risk. Okay. And so in this context, a merchant power plant that's like usually like a small or, what do I, how do I say, independent power plant that is not usually contracted over the long term, but it's relying on the, I don't say, maybe short-term market, spot market type of thing. Mm -hmm. is, that, is that right? A proper description i um, somewhat yeah um, <laughs> so i would say almost every every plant has some sort of uptake agreement um that is that is something that's i think fairly expected in terms of getting a project uh financed or, or attracting investors um i think what would what happens maybe a little bit more often is that a plant will opt to sell a portion of their power merchant and have a portion of their power under an agreement. So maybe they'll say like, I want a, a PPA or a VPPA or some sort of offtake agreement that covers 80% of what I generate. And then I want, I still want to hold a little of that risk. I want the, like a 20% of my plant just selling into the market in case there's some upside that I can take advantage of. Right, like if there's not enough power in the in in the marketplace, then if they produce, they can get lots of money at, at that time. Uh -huh. Yep. And what I really like, you don't have to comment on this, but what I really like, right? There's some gas-fired power plants, and they just operate for like five days a year, and but only when the when the price is really high, and they just make a their profits from from that. So. You don't have to comment for whatever reason, but but, but something I've heard like of, that. Uh, gas gas peaker plants, uh, but yeah, I've I've definitely heard of that. <laughs> yes, right, and then then you're like, oh, I'm so jealous. Why didn't I think of that? Right, <laughs> like how great would that be? Work five days a year, and then like that's all you got to do to make your your money. So, um, okay, okay, but but 
basically renewable energy though right it, it's operating daily more or less and it's understanding i mean we don't have to go in the daily operation but but it's operating at a consistent level throughout throughout the time mm-hmm. and um these long-term agreements short-term agreements in the market um may, how, how, i'm trying i'm trying to say uh, I want to maybe what's the difference between the long-term agreements and the short-term agreements? It's just how the owners of these these um, projects how they see this mix basically and the risk that they want to take on in the short term versus the long-term uh, benefits of some stability. Yeah. Um, well, in this case, I would say that like the long-term versus short-term is is really. In terms of like years of of contracts, uh, depends on on who is signing it. So, um, a a generator, uh, a renewable energy seller, um, really wants a, a long term agreement because these are these are long term investments, um, like l- large capital projects, um, and so they would like to have that certainty for longer um, or uh, hedge their risks for longer. Um, some of the buyers of of renewable energy um, sometimes want shorter agreements. They they want to sort of lock in or hedge a certain set of risks in the first say three years, and then reevaluate going forward. Maybe maybe their risk tolerance has changed. Um, Maybe they want to try something different, but they, um, for some of the the, the clean energy buyers, um, they will sometimes go with with shorter term contracts. But mm-hmm. the financing reason they uh, renewable energy sellers typically uh, want longer term contracts. Okay, okay. Well, that sounds like a marketplace. <laughs> then um, you, you, you mentioned hedging, and maybe we should define hedging. So mm-hmm. I think you've explained it kind of well, actually, but maybe let's make it explicit. So when you're hedging in the, in the renewable power market, in, in the sense, what, what are you doing? What does that mean for, for the sellers of electricity? Yeah, so hedging can mean a lot of different things. But, but here, it, what I'm really talking about is is an, a, a contract or an agreement to mitigate some of the risks associated with with renewable energy generation or with the value of renewable energy generation. So like we already talked about, that could be weather-related risk, that could be price risk, that could be shape risk. Um, and, and just to be clear, like these hedging agreements, like they don't, they don't make these risks go away. Um, they are sort of transferring these risks from one party to another. So um, if a if a uh, wind or solar farm wants to uh, mitigate, say, their, their weather risk, they will find uh, work with us to find either a, a reinsurance company uh, investment managers specializing in climate risk, or maybe just other companies that have opposing risk profiles to try and come up with a mutually beneficial contract that will transfer that risk from the party that doesn't want it to the party that is either more willing or able to tolerate or pool that risk. Okay, so so now now we're getting into what your your company does actually. So it's this risk mitig- hedging is risk. Maybe I, I try to try to create a definition. <laughs> hedging is a risk mitig- mitigation strategy to hand over or transfer that risk to others that want to take on that risk. Is that kind of right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. That's good. good. I'm glad I'm learning from you, Aaron. So always, always. And, and uh, so then what your company does and the resurety, and maybe it kind of it demonstrates in the name, actually, I think, is you facilitate or they facilitate uh, working with a range of partners to find ways to spread out this risk or find people that want to take on this risk that others don't want. Exactly. Huh? Yeah. And then, mm-hmm. go ahead. Um, I was just going to say that 
Um, I would also separate out hedging a little bit, um, which is more focused around sort of financial risk and, and things associated with the value of renewable energy from, say, um, operational risk or severe weather risk and, and things that would be um, sort of handled by a traditional insurance company. Oh, okay. Okay. So this is more, um, yeah, we should, we definitely should get to severe weather risks because that, that's really fun. So, but to talk about it at least, um, but so, so this is, goes along with your profile of looking out the longer time horizons, three to five years. So kind of these general risks that usually arise during this time frame. And, yeah. Um, so the goal, I think, with a lot of these contracts is to, um, yeah, pro provides more stability with respect to mitigating the risks that these parties want want to mitigate. And I know that sounds sort of a little broad, <laughs> but we offer a lot of different products that do a lot of different things. And so, um, yeah, it, it, it can vary uh, quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And and um, does it vary between solar projects or wind projects, or how how does it vary? Maybe you don't have to get so so specific, but kind of maybe in general. Yeah it it can vary in terms of the types of risks that are that are transferred and sort of the mechanism and the structure of the contracts change depending on. Um, how how we transfer that risk and so um one of one of the product products that we offer is something called a, a proxy revenue swap and that uses uh what we call proxy generation to or sorry a proxy revenue swap prs um what a what happens there is a wind farm will essentially exchange the variable revenue that they make in a given year to a risk capacity provider. And that capacity provider will provide a fixed annual payment to the wind farm every single year um, so that a wind farm or solar farm uh, essentially has much more predictable revenue because they have this fixed annual payment that they're getting from a, a risk capacity provider every year. And so sometimes that's a net positive for the wind farm. Sometimes it's a net negative, but it sort of removes essentially all three of the risks that we've talked about so far um, or mitigates them significantly uh, by sort of limiting the downside, but also limiting the upside that, that they see. Mm -hmm. And the risk capacity provider, I like the name, mm -hmm. uh, they essentially are creating a portfolio, I would imagine, of projects and assets that mm -hmm. would generate electricity, we'll say, or power over this period of time in, in a balanced way. Uh, yeah, it, it, it is easier for... Um, a risk capacity provider to say have exposure to weather related risks in a bunch of different technologies in a bunch of different areas all around the world than it is for a single developer or owner of a wind of wind or solar farms to actually build all those different technologies in all of those different places to provide that that diversity. Mm -hmm. Aaron, I, I think our conversation is awesome just because I know we're like being trying to be very accurate in our language and in our descriptions and everything, but it goes and it shows like how complex, right? Renewable energy projects are and, and the, the mechanisms and this sense, this financial mechanisms, the risk mechanisms that are in place behind it. It's not just like crazy Wall Street stuff. Uh, what, what, what is whatever, right? But, but it's like, how do you maximize the output and maximize the participation in the marketplace of these renewable energy facilitators, facilities? And it shows that you need to have, for example, these capacity providers operating, which 
have their hands in lots of different projects and can balance help balance things out you know behind the scenes basically and not just in the in the spot market or the week ahead market something like this but it shows how highly complex these renewable projects are uh and behind the scenes yeah i don't have a question but yeah yeah Yeah, right (laughs) that's yeah, it, I mean it's it's excellent. I I think it's it's so so great. And um maybe maybe we move on a little bit and I ask you about building renewable energy projects because uh and how and where these are best located. So so are they located since since you know on the weather side where the weather is best or are there other factors that can play into where some facilities could be located? Yeah, I I think it it depends on on your aim a little bit. So, um, I, from a just pure efficiency perspective, like you'd want to say, like I want to build it where I want to build my wind plant where there's the most wind, and my solar plant where there's the most sun. Um, we have started doing that already, and in some cases, uh, transmission constraints makes building more facilities in that area uh, difficult. Um, but if sort of the ultimate goal is, is decarbonization, which, which I think it is, um, then I think we need to start taking more factors into account than just like, where is the best resource? Um, so where, where you get your power from and where you develop your wind or solar plant can have a a big impact on your decarbonization goals than than you might think. So if you are building a, a wind or solar farm in an area that is um, heavily dominated by fossil fuels with zero renewable penetration, um, your net impact on, on reducing carbon output is a lot larger than if you are building another wind or solar farm in an area that already has really high penetration of renewables. Um, and so I think paying attention to where you're building your projects, not only from a resource perspective, but from a sort of grid topology perspective um, is also going to be more and more important. And uh surety plug, like one, one of the newer products that we've launched that I haven't worked on personally, but I think is one of the, the cooler things that we've, we've done uh, in recent years is... Uh, location, locational marginal emissions, which is uh, a measure of sort of what I just described, like for each unit of of power that you generate or consume, um, does that have a, a positive effect or a negative effect on, on decarbonization? Okay. And uh <laughs> I'm trying to process all this. So, so this is, I mean, it's great because, but it goes against somewhat, or it doesn't go against like, you know, under Biden, we're waiting for the, you know, Nebraska to open up to wind farms and we can ship that electricity everywhere by building high power lines. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but from your perspective, you're saying, actually, if we invest in some regions, I, I have no idea, like uh, Kentucky or Pennsylvania, and build more solar and wind, then actually that can benefit those locations much more in in using clean energy than just re- wait, waiting and relying on large transmission lines to to send it. In in part, and I think I think transmission is still a huge a huge part of the the picture here, like. Um, like large investments in in new transmission capacity are going to be important um, for grid resiliency and and um, transitioning to to a clean energy economy. Um, but looking at sort of the current constraints and and the current um, sort of state of the grid. Yeah, I think I think paying attention to what is already there and and what is the marginal impact of putting a plant in in say one location over another location uh, can be important. And even in grids that have relatively high renewable uh, penetration, in some cases, um, 
where the transmission constraint is can can determine um, whether or not you have sort of smaller uh, impact on on decarbonization or or a larger impact. Okay, cool. And 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 so your company is selling selling this product. And who would be the buyer normally of of this? Um, I think the buyer of of this particular product would be. Um, large companies and industries who are interested in in affecting decarbonization and advancing decarbonization and sort of selecting what what locations and, and what plants that they will invest in or potentially even developers to try and find like where where should I build my plant where I will attract a a large corporation or industry buyer who will want to to invest there. Ah, because, okay, I mean, let me make a joke. It's only <laughs> a joke, but it's like this carbon offsetting, right? So okay. if I, f I fly on a plane and I pay an organization to plant me some trees in the Amazon, like that's all nice and good, but it basically doesn't work. And then, in my opinion, and I don't know, things I read, so that's not official, but basically the, what it delivers is very minor. But in this case, actually, you're demonstrating, hey, this can go and be built in a region where it's going to have a really big impact or have a big impact. And you could locate, or if you're already located in this area, you can participate in this green transition in this region and actually make it make a difference. That's yeah, what's and, and offering. I, I think like it's uh like it's made me really excited to see um some some large companies uh who are are genuinely concerned about their impact and and um like don't want their initiatives to be seen as as greenwashing. And so like I think in the past few years in the renewable energy, there's um, started to be this idea of uh, it's called additionality, where rather than just sort of going out and buying renewable credit or a carbon credit, that um, companies invest in renewable projects directly in a way that help new projects get built. Um, and so in, in, some cases that can be signing a virtual PPA with with a project and that virtual PPA can sometimes put a project over the edge in terms of like here is sort of the the level of financial cert certainty that is needed to get that project financed and that would not have necessarily happened without that corporate buyer signing that PPA um, and I think that that idea is becoming more and more popular among um, a lot of large companies rather than just sort of saying like, I'm going to buy, buy a credit and call it good. Okay. Yeah. They need to demonstrate, yeah, not just buying credits, but they're actually doing something and, and, and right. They could even point to that specific project itself, like in their mm -hmm. yearly report or something. This is actually what we're doing. We're not just buying abstract credits someplace, but here are the people here's the community that's being impacted where we are spending our money. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's powerful. That's, that's great. Okay. Let's, let's, um, I'm going to start, maybe we can start to, to finish up here, but first, before we, we do that, I, I want to ask about these extreme weather events, right? <laughs> and, and like what comes to mind is Texas, uh, mm -hmm. last, I guess it was winter when they got the snow and ice and everything got frozen up and everything. And like, these are extreme weather events. I know we just went through the almost past hour describing how you look at trends over the longer term over years, mm -hmm. but, but what, what happens, maybe, maybe we can talk about what, what your company does specifically, or how does that affect the, the, um, the projections, but, or just in general, we can speak about what happens when these extreme weather events happen and how do the the both the renewable energy companies deal with it, and how does it is how is it dealt with on the marketplace? Yeah, um, in terms of like these severe weather events, um, it in Texas in particular, I think sort of the industry as a whole like sort of stepped back and said like, okay, um, what 
what was my exposure here? Was it <laughs> yeah. something that we planned for or not? And if not, how do we deal with it in the future? Um, and a lot of the work that I do is, is as I mentioned, related to sort of long-term trends and, and we try to capture extreme events in that distribution so that we are sort of pricing that into, uh, into our contracts and into our analysis. Um, yeah, this is sort of outside of my, my wheelhouse and, and what me and it and, uh, individually does, but like, I, I'm going to be curious to see what, what type of sort of physical changes happen there. Like th this was an extreme weather event, but not, not super extreme. Um, and I think there is a case to be made for new uh, new weatherization, um, like a lot of the power plants in Texas um, weren't designed to deal with that type of weather. Um, not just renewable energy, but gas as well. Um, and yeah, and I, from my perspective, there is a lot of thought going into how do we take into account the possibility of this event and other events like it into the future in terms of sort of immediate effects? I think there's like, in some cases, this falls into like the insurance bucket that I mentioned before. Like there is, um, there's weather related risk and price related risk and shape risk. But um, at the end of the day, like the Texas event in particular, um, like the market changed, uh, during that event. So there are rules around, um, like how prices are set and, and how things operate. And, and during that event in particular, uh, basically the market operator said, okay, setting that aside, prices are X amount until blackouts stop, which is, uh, not something I think anyone really planned for, uh, in that particular event. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But yeah, so, it's, it's something that we try to take into account in terms of, um, our long-term analysis, but in certain sort of one-off events, I guess the, the idea is that this will be incorporated and in, in priced in appropriately. And so I won't over, say sensitive to it, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. I mean, it's important, right? And and just it kind of ties back into looking at the past ten or twenty years and and how temperatures have risen, and then factoring those into your future forecasts. And then when there's events like that, looking back at that and then trying to incorporate that into the future uh, analysis as well. Yeah, that and that's like again, this is one where I think it like some political risk and. Um, and policy risk gets into it as well because, um, yeah, if depending on sort of the requirements of operators and plants and whatnot, like, um, it is possible to make, uh, I think make the grid more resilient to weather events like that. Um, and this is definitely getting far outside my wheelhouse, but, <laughs> um, making the grid more resilient to extreme weather events in general is going to be something that's going to be important going forward, especially uh, with climate change. Um, sort of expecting just the severe weather that we've seen in the past may not be enough to sort of shore up against uh, what climate change will throw at us in the very long term. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, l l just look at Vancouver and up in Canada this past week with the floods and the highways and Railroads taken out by extreme water events, and it, it's crazy. And how how could you even imagine that Vancouver, a huge city, would be cut off? Mm -hmm. Like you, you can't even. Yeah. Yeah. Or the, or the heat wave in the Pacific Northwest from, oh man, I can't remember if it was earlier this this summer or yeah, summer. But yeah. Yeah. Right. You just can't. Yeah. Okay. Well. You get a fun, fun area to, yeah. to, to work in. And, uh, Aaron, my last question to you is what is the energy system you want to see in 2050? 
I would love to see a a much more decarbonized grid in in 2050. Um, I I would love to see a a significantly upgraded system where where we have significantly more transmission capacity, a grid that's that's more resilient to to weather events and to variability in renewable energy. Um, a system where where storage is is ubiquitous and um, sort of some of the the hour to hour variability of renewable energy is no longer a concern. Um, and I'd like to see an energy system where uh, renewables are are self sustaining. Um, like, and I think some of these hedging contracts can potentially help with that. But um, like, especially the past few years. From a political perspective, I think the risk of policy changes is is real in the next few years, and seeing um, a, I guess the bottom line is that it, if the if renewables are are profitable on their own and self sustaining on their own, there's no way of sort of backtracking. The market will continue to push forward regardless of of what policies are in place, and that's something that I would like to see sort of firmly there uh by 2050 where like there's no going back yeah absolutely right everything the whole structure has changed so that renewables are the only way to to move forward yep all right aaron thank you so much for coming on the podcast thank you thank you for joining us for this episode we produce the my energy 2050 podcast to learn about cutting edge research and the people building our clean energy system If you enjoyed this episode or any episode, please share it. The more we spread our message of the ease of an energy transition, the faster we can make it. You can follow us on LinkedIn, where we are the most active on the MyEnergy2050 webpage, or on Twitter and Facebook. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. Thank you for listening to this week's episode.